I'd like you to turn with me this morning, please, back to Luke chapter 23. And I want to focus your attention there on verse 34, where we read, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, as you read the narrative of the crucifixion of Christ, as you read the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, there's one thing that really stands out through that whole narrative, and that is the silence of the Saviour. Through all those awful events from his being bound in the Garden of Gethsemane, right up to those final moments as his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ barely says a word. There were, of course, a few occasions when Christ did speak. He confirmed, you remember, his identity as the Son of God to the high priest. He made it clear to Pilate that he was king of kings, that he was the one with authority. As he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, we read that there in this chapter, he stopped and he spoke to those women with such kindness and tenderness. But while there were these occasional moments when Christ spoke, the gospel writers are, they're very keen to point out his silence. Just take Matthew's gospel, for example, when Christ is standing before the chief priests and the elders and all the council, we read there how they brought false witnesses against the Lord Jesus. And the high priest stands up and says to Jesus, answerest thou nothing? And Matthew tells us that Jesus held his peace. And you remember how Christ was then taken from Pontius Pilate and he was then taken to stand before Herod and Herod questioned him. We read about how he was standing before Herod and Herod says there as he questioned him with many words that he answered him nothing. There's the silence of the saviour. Even before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks the same question as the high priest. He says, answerest thou nothing? Mark tells us that Jesus yet answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. And it's remarkable, isn't it, when you think about all the accusations that were hurled at our Saviour, all the verbal abuse and the mockery and the taunts, how they even took Christ's own words and they twisted them and threw them back in his face. Now, if that was us, wouldn't we have been so quick to, you know, add our own abuse back to them? Wouldn't we have wanted to give it back or at least defend our reputation? And of course, it's all the more remarkable when you think not only of the insults they cast at him, but think of all the physical pain that Christ was enduring. And think of all the spiritual agony, all the agony that Christ was under. Which of us would have suffered so silently? And yet, of course, Isaiah 53 reminds us that all of this was prophesied. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The quietness of Christ. But when we come to our text this morning, we now see the Saviour's lips moving. He's been silent during all those hours leading up to the cross, but now on the cross, the Saviour speaks. 
And he prays here to his father. He pours out his heart in prayer and supplication. And C.H. Spurgeon said the Lamb of God was silent to men, but now he's not silent to God. And it's amazing to think, isn't it, that even the agony of the cross could not stop Christ praying. Christ had lived a life of constant prayer, one in which he had been in nights in close communion with his Father. And, and even now here, as he's on the cross, he cannot break that habit. He's got to pray. And what an example to us as believers. We're commanded, aren't we, to pray without ceasing. Our Lord said that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We sometimes sing the hymn, don't we, um, where it says this, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And here's Christ on the cross and he's praying. I'm sure you know that this saying here in Luke 23 and verse 34, it's the first of seven sayings of Christ that are recorded in the Gospels from the cross. Seven sayings that are full of instruction and full of excellence. Each one has, has weight and meaning to them. Remember Solomon, he said that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. And each of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross are like that. They're like apples of gold in pictures of silver. If we were to take time to study each of those seven sayings, you'd discover that Christ... In these words, he displays just a complete self-forgetfulness. He's got no concern for himself on the cross. Rather, what you see as he's hanging on the cross is a deep love for his people. And these seven sayings really reveal the heart of Christ. And so this morning, I want us to take a few moments to peer into our Saviour's heart as we look at this prayer of Christ as he says, Father, forgive them. And I want to notice three things with you this morning. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention here is a priority. A priority. Just stop and, and just think here for a moment of where the Lord Jesus is as he prays this. He's on a Roman crucifix. He's hanging like a common criminal between heaven and earth. Either side of him are these two malefactors, these thieves. He's been numbered with the transgressors. And surrounding that cross, there is this, this baying crowd pouring out these words of, of poison and contempt towards the Saviour. It's all aimed at him. He's been lifted up as a public spectacle for people to come and watch as he dies. And you press rewind for a moment on those 12 hours that are leading up to the cross. And remember what Christ has already endured. Think of that night of sleeplessness and suffering. Started of his agony in Gethsemane. It carried on in Gabbatha. And having endured Gethsemane and Gabbatha, he then walks to Golgotha. And it's there that they pierced his hands and his feet. Think of all that suffering that he endured. No wonder Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you know, friends, as we read the, the narrative of the crucifixion, we have to be so, so careful. Careful that we just don't pass over these events as if they were nothing. You know, we can so easily read the record and have such a coldness in our hearts and never stop to think of the reality of it all and the pain and the suffering of Christ. 
And we can also never stop and think about its meaning, its spiritual meaning and its spiritual significance. What Christ went through here was the most unimaginable suffering. Not just physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. Spiritual suffering as God the Father took out that sword of divine justice and pierced the very soul of his Son. And you know, believer, it was all for us. Isn't that wonderful? All the suffering of Christ, it was for us. And so as we come to this prayer this morning, let's not detach these words from his context. Christ is suffering. And yet his very first words on the cross to his father in all his excruciating agony are not anything to do with his pain. He doesn't pray for his pain to be taken away. Christ doesn't seek for his suffering to end. That's amazing, isn't it? He's thinking not of his injuries, but rather he's thinking of his enemies. More importantly than not, he's not only thinking of his enemies, but he's thinking of their forgiveness and their sin. And so he prays, Father, forgive. Isn't that amazing? If that was us, wouldn't we have desired to be relieved of our pain, to be put out of our misery? But not Christ. Christ looks at this this crowd of sinners, and he does so with a tenderness. He does so with this forgiving spirit. He's thinking of their sin, and so he prays this prayer. And Christ is showing to us here the greatest priority of man. These are his first words from the cross, and therefore they occupy a place of great importance. He doesn't pray for their tongues to be stopped and their sin to end. He doesn't even pray for his glory to be revealed and that they would see who he is, the king of glory. He doesn't pray for their understanding to be opened. He prays, Father, forgive them. And Christ is highlighting here man's greatest problem and man's most pressing needs. Man's greatest problem is his sin and man's most pressing need is for his sins to be forgiven. The crowd below Christ, they had sinned, hadn't they? They, had, they were crucifying the Lord of glory. They had taken the unblemished Lamb of God and they had pierced him and nailed him to that tree. I mean, in one sense, we couldn't imagine a worse crime than that, could we? Taking God's beloved Son and killing him. The one who came to dispense mercy and grace, the one who had came to save sinners, they're killing him. Now, many of them had done so in a degree of ignorance, as Christ states here. Christ said, there they know not what they do. And Christ, in a sense, is saying to his father, look at them. They don't understand the severity of their sin. They don't just grasp how awful all of this is. They haven't acknowledged me as the saviour. In their darkness and their spiritual ignorance, they've they've failed to recognise who I am. And so he says here, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, have pity on them. Please, will you not take all their sin in a sense and plunge it into the depths of the sea and remember it no more? Father, will you not grant to them forgiveness? Christ here is not excusing their sin. He wasn't saying their sin was not worthy of condemnation, but he prays that they would come to salvation and know forgiveness, that they would know pardon through faith in him. That's what he's praying in essence here. 
And friends, do we see this as the one thing most needful? What a person most desperately needs is is not a a better education or a a more comfortable life. It's not a more favourable environment to, to live in, to have more money, more possessions, more holidays. What a person needs more than anything else is for his or her sin to be forgiven. Let me just make an an aside here for a moment to those here this morning who are unsaved. Friends, this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is your most pressing need. Can only come from God. Christ here prays to his Father. And the wonderful thing is that forgiveness is a free gift from God. It cannot be purchased. and, And no one else can buy it for you or grant it to you. Only God's. You know that word there that Jesus used, that word forgive there. You know, it's a word that means to pay and cancel a great debt. That's what our sin is like. It's like an enormous debt that we could never pay by ourselves. Even if we had a thousand lives, we could never pay the debt of our sin. But remember again where we are this morning here. We're at Calvary. And remember who it is who's speaking these words. It's Christ, the Son of God. And while this prayer, you see, flows from his lips, at the same time flowing from his head and his hands and his feet is his precious blood. And friends, that's the price that was required for our sins to be forgiven. Christ was paying the price for our sin. Christ was praying for forgiveness But at the same time, he was procuring forgiveness. And so this prayer that Christ prays is not offered up in vain. Christ did not sort of look up to to heaven, just sort of hoping that, that this might be possible. Christ prayed with certainty because right there, he's bearing his people's sins. If you're a Christian here this morning, does this not thrill you? Christ died for you and he paid that great price you could never pay. All our sins, believer, have been forgiven. We read, didn't we, Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a wonder that is. It's a great blessing to know sin's forgiven. And that's our greatest priority and that's the greatest blessing that we can know personally is to know our sin forgiven. Let me ask you this morning, friends, do you know that? Sins forgiven in Christ. We've noted a priority, but notice secondly this morning a picture, a picture, because Christ here is praying, and he's praying for sinners, and he's praying here that they would know forgiveness. He's praying for their salvation praying that they would know him as their saviour, that they would trust in him, because that's the only way that anyone can know forgiveness in this world, is through Christ. And what we see here in this brief moment on the cross is a picture of what Christ is doing even now. It's a picture of what he's doing perpetually for his people. You know, Christ is even now in heaven and he is praying and he is pleading of his Father on behalf of his people. Christ is interceding in heaven. What he did on the cross, he's now doing on his throne. 
Remember what we're told in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Friends, Christ is alive and he's in heaven and he lives to make intercession for his beloved people. Believer, this morning, Christ is praying for you. He does so as our great high priest. The high priest, you remember, they not only had to carry out the sacrifices, but they had to take that blood and they had to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And Christ is our great priest, having made that perfect sacrifice. He's now entered heaven. He's gone through the veil, carrying, as it were, his own blood. And there he intercedes for his people. And his blood is speaking even now to his heavenly father. And they speak of better things, you remember, than that of Abel's. His blood pleads for his people. And this cry from the cross here, it's a picture of what's taking place now in heaven. Christ is our priest. And he's our advocate. He's pleading for us. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, accuses us before God, but Christ stands and pleads on our behalf. You know, friends, this is one of the most comforting doctrines there is in all of Scripture. Remember, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ pleads and prays for us. And when there's no one who cares for us, when there's no one who's praying for us, when it seems like no one cares for our soul and no one knows our troubles and our griefs of our hearts, we can be sure that that Jesus Christ knows them all and he pleads for us. No believer, he's forever interested in you. And he's forever interceding for you. He knows all your griefs. He knows all your sorrows. He knows all your battles. He knows what each of us really needs and he prays for the best things for you. He prays for those things that bring us the greatest spiritual goods. And yet think of this, this is even more remarkable because he prayed for us before we had any thoughts of him. Here's Christ and he's praying on this cross and he's praying for a people who are displaying their hatred to him. They were cursing him. They were casting out all sorts of blasphemous words towards him. And yet he blesses them. Isn't this what he's done for you, Christian, this morning? Wasn't there a time in your life when you completely disregarded God? You showed no love for Christ. You despised him. There was a hatred for the Bible. There was a hatred for the things of the Bible. Hatred for Christ. And yet even then he was praying for you. Friends, this morning, do not say, there is the love of Christ. Before you were saved, Christ was pleading for you in heaven. Furthermore, we can add to that, you know, that his prayers are always successful. You know, when Christ intercedes, it's always effectual. His voice penetrates the heart of his heavenly father with an irresistible power. God cannot turn away his son's requests. And no one in in heaven or in earth can ever protest against what Christ prays for. His prayers are effectual. And we see that even here. There, standing near the cross, you remember, was a Roman centurion. 
And that Roman centurion, when he saw all these events, we're told he glorified God. And he said, certainly this was a righteous man. There was one person who there at the cross was saved and forgiven. But then you go to Acts chapter 2, and you come to the day of Pentecost. Remember Peter stands up there on the day of Pentecost to preach. And as he's speaking of Christ, he says to them, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter's speaking to people who were part of that crowd who were shouting abuse at Christ. He says, you took him. You killed the Lord of glory. You put him on the cross. Then you get to the end of Acts 2. What do we read? When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. You know what happens? They were exhorted to repent and be baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. 3,000 souls who had cried out at the cross had been forgiven of their sin. They've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, friends, Christ's prayer was effectual then and is still effectual today. Now I said here that we see a picture of what Christ was doing now in heaven, but surely we also see here a picture of what we're to do here on earth, what we as a church should be doing. Surely it's a, it's a picture of our duty. We're to pray for the unsaved too, aren't we? It should be our delight to bring sinners to the throne of grace and to plead for them and seek for the Lord to save them and forgive them of their sin. This is what we should be doing in our prayer meetings. Lord, you know our friend down the road, you know that person that I work with, you know my family who are not saved. Lord, will you not forgive them? Will you not bring them to that point when they trust in you? There's scores around us, aren't there, that hate Christ. Perhaps you know colleagues at work, members of your family. Friends, do you ever plead for them? Do you ever pray for them? Do you ever show that same earnestness and love for them as Christ does here for those who are hating him? Friends, may we have that same compassion for the loss that Christ did here, even in his agony. Finally, though, this morning, we've seen a priority. We've seen a picture But notice, lastly, a pattern. Here's the saviour in the midst of his extreme agony. As we've said, everyone around him is despising him, scorning him. And yet, despite all the reproach thrown at him, Christ prays for them. He's praying for his enemies. And yet, you know, if Christ had wished to, he could have just spoken a word And the ground would have opened up and swallowed every single one of that crowd. He could have called down 12 legions of angels to come and destroy them and immediately cast them from his presence. But Christ, you know, here was not lacking in opportunity. He was not lacking in power. He could have done that if he had wished. But instead, we find the Saviour praying words of such kindness. He shows meekness and patience and contentment even in his suffering. He prays for those who are persecuting him, men who had shown him such vile contempt and malice. There's not even the slightest hint of revenge here. There's no thought on Christ's part of retaliation or vengeance. Instead, all the Saviour seeks here is their salvation. While they cursed him, 
he blesses them. While they were vomiting out scorn, Christ pours out prayer. Now, Thomas Manton, the Puritan, put it in this way. He said, the best of mercies Christ desired for the worst of sinners. But isn't it true that when we are in pain and facing trials, we're so quick, aren't we, to forget even our friends, but Christ here at the height of his agony remembers his enemies. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. He said, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And friends, he leaves us here with an example. And friends, the same spirit you see, that same love that was in the heart of the Saviour should beat in ours. That same sweetness and mercy and meekness should mark our lives as Christians. Christ has commanded us to love our enemies. He says, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We're to be merciful even as our Father is merciful. There's so many examples in the scriptures. David did this. Psalm 35, you can read there of him praying for his enemies, praying for those who had brought false witness against him. Read there how he humbled himself, how he fasted, even when his enemies were sick. You see, we're not to simply act like a sponge in the wake of persecution and hatred. We're not just to sort of sit there with this sort of stoic attitude like an inanimate object and just let hatred pass over us. We're to do the opposite. We're to respond positively with love. We're to receive evil and yet return good to our enemies. Paul could say, couldn't he, to the church at Corinth that being reviled, we bless. And we're to have this same forgiving spirit. We're never to seek revenge. The world encourages revenge. I remember as a child, there used to be a program on TV, Get Your Own Back. It was a great program to watch as a child. The whole point was that you got someone on and you wanted to get your own back on, usually a mum or a dad or somebody that you knew, and you got to plunge gun call over them at the end of the show and get your own back. The world encourages this. Don't get, it says, you know, don't get mad, get even. It says revenge is a dish best served cold. But the scripture says, no vengeance belongeth to the Lord's. Rather, we're to seek the good of others. It's two things that should check us. Firstly, God forbids it. Secondly, because God has forgiven you. Think of the mountain of sin in your life. Think of the enormous debt that you owe to God, and yet, believer, you've been forgiven every single sin. Every sin paid for by the blood of Christ. And yet how often do we retain that unforgiving spirit? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And he says, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Christian, this morning we should do this privately, we should do this publicly, we're to do it to our enemies as well as our brothers and sisters in the Lord's. And as I close this morning, let me ask you, is there anyone here 
that you continue to hold a grudge against? Is there someone here that you won't speak to because of something that they said to you once on a Sunday morning and now you walk out and you never speak to them because you've got this unforgiving spirit? And let me encourage you, put away that difference. Solomon tells us it's our glory to pass over a transgression. Pass it over. Peter reminds us not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Friends, this morning, may the mind of Christ, our Saviour, live in each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for these words of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray and thank Thee that our sins can be forgiven because of what Christ did at Calvary. And we thank Thee that even now He pleads on our behalf in heaven. We ask, Father, that the same Spirit that is in Christ would be in us, that we would have that forgiving Spirit to be tender-hearted because we know that all our sins have been forgiven by Thee. Help us in these things, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.